This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Claire Brindis, and on behalf, and along with Dan Grossman and our co-sponsors, including the Center of Excellence in Women's Health, it's really a pure honor to welcome you and our distinguished guests to today's event. There was tremendous interest, as you can see, and we had to change the venue just to be able to accommodate, and we're thrilled that you're here. As one of the co-sponsors of the event at the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies, I honor the commitment of the University of California, San Francisco, to its research, training, and service missions, and that the faculty and staff of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health and, and ANSWER have had a very long history and tradition of conducting groundbreaking research and analysis in the fields of contraceptive development, evaluations of reproductive health programs, research care and training in the area of abortion, as well as service throughout the world. So this event really provides an opportunity to discuss the evidence and the research in anticipating the role of California in the future with the possibility of whether Roe v. Wade be undermined or overturned in whatever way there will be a lot of action at the state level. And before we begin our panels, I wanted to just spend a couple of minutes providing some contextualizing about this overall environment in which we're living and in which this afternoon's conversation takes place. First, we need to recognize the tremendous attacks on women's access to abortion care mirrors repeated, concurrent, synergistic, and relentless attempts to dismantle women's access to birth control. And there are many efforts to link contraceptives to types of abortion. The targets of these efforts are women, often women of color, often the poorest of the women among us, and the most marginalized populations. We see this in the effort to dismantle the Title X program, including earlier efforts to eliminate the whole program in the President's budget. But more recently, the attempt to silence providers, undermining patient-provider relationships, and preventing them from providing time-sensitive information critical to women's decision-making. Without our current legal challenges and litigation, providers would have to choose between violating their medical ethics and turning down funding that allows them to serve patients who need quality reproductive health. And obviously, we need to recognize that the efforts at domestic gag rule is also mirrored in the efforts to do a gag rule internationally and globally. Secondly, there's been numerous attempts to limit access to women's health care through numerous efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And as part of those initial efforts, some of you may remember a couple of years ago, there was efforts to totally eliminate Planned Parenthood from being able to provide care. And even though now we feel that at first glance the ACA was maintained, we need to recognize all the threats that remain to the program. There's the reductions in funding for the program overall, threats to eliminating the essential benefits that include access to preventive health visits for women and access to contraceptives without copay, the elimination of tax penalties for individuals who do not sign up for health insurance coverage, which is so key to assuring that a sufficient number of healthy families and healthy people are enrolled in the program, the significant reductions in the funding for community and 
um, outreach workers who are so important in navigating for many, many individuals opportunities for getting health care coverage, including many women who do not know about the program without community promotoras and others really reaching out to them, and then eliminating a number of other cost insurance aspects to it. There's also been a number of efforts, and I won't be able to enumerate them all for you, in terms of sanctioning discriminatory practices that would allow employers greater latitude in their ability to exclude contraception from employer-sponsored coverage owing to either their religious or moral objectives or regulations that would enable conscious clauses or refusal of care for those individuals who object to providing some of the services that we care about so deeply based upon their own religious beliefs. But we're finding now that there's a dismantling or efforts at dismantling protections against discrimination, whether it be in the area of housing, whether it be in the area of the U.S. military, whether it be of, of, uh, bans the enlistment of transgender individuals, or a number of other areas. What's very clear is that place matters. Living in California matters. Where you live, how much money you make, and what kinds of insurance one has matters upon your access to health care and being able to receive the types of services that we will talk about today. That should not be happening, and that's why we're speaking up. We need to recognize that other attacks are occurring, whether it's work requirements for Medicaid or immigration policy, the separation of children at the border from their families, the 2010 and the, excuse me, the 2020 citizenship questions, which would really change the types of services that are available to individuals. This is clearly an erosion of human rights. And we need to understand that we live in a state that recognizes that this context and helps to see that the bigoted attacks that occur against women is linked to a number of our efforts to really recognize the importance of diversity, recognize the importance of inclusiveness, and and social justice. We recognize, finally, that California is a leader, and we've been a leader in the litigation effort. We have an incredible leader in our attorney general who has sued the federal government over 50 times. And we hope that this afternoon we'll identify ways that we at UCSF and our partners, many of you who are in this room, will really be leaders in education, service delivery, research, and advocacy in the face of a looming national crisis related to reproductive health care access. So on that note, I want to welcome our first panel, which will be moderated by Dan Grossman. Great. Um, good afternoon. My name is Dan Grossman. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm the director of ANSWER. Uh, I want to welcome our first panel up here. I also just want to say that we're going to be doing questions um, at the end of both of the panels. I think that is um, mostly what I wanted to say. I just wanted to welcome this incredible panel of national experts. Um, we have Renee Bracey Sherman from the National Network of Abortion Funds, also known as the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. Um, Aaron Grant from the Abortion Care Network, which represents um, independent abortion providers, which as many of you know, provide the majority of abortions in this country. And um, Stephanie Toady from the Lawyering Project, 
Um, who also just happened to have argued uh, Holman's Health versus Hellerstadt before the U.S. Supreme Court. And we're so honored <laughs> to have all of you here to talk about what's happening, give us a national perspective about the opportunities and um, threats. And so um, each of our panelists is going to have a few minutes to give a few remarks. I think, Renee, we'll start with you. Great. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Grossman, for that wonderful introduction uh, into Answer and UCSF for having me. As Dr. Grossman said, my name is Renee Bracey Sherman, and I am the Senior Public Affairs Manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds. For the past 25 years, with our network of 70 abortion funds representing 41 states, the National Network of Abortion Funds has built power with our members to remove the financial and logistical barriers to abortion access by centering people who have abortions and organizing at the intersections of racial, economic, and reproductive justice. We envision a world where every reproductive decision, including abortion, takes place in thriving communities that are safe, peaceful, and affordable. We envision a world where all people have the power and resources to care for and affirm their bodies, their identities, and health for themselves and their families in all areas of, the, of their lives. As we shift the conversation about abortion, we believe that it will actually become a real option without shame or judgment. At the National Network of Abortion Funds, I run We Testify, which is a leadership program dedicated to increasing the spectrum of abortion storytellers in the public sphere and shifting the way the media understands the context and complexity of accessing abortion care. We Testify seeks to build the power and leadership of abortion storytellers, particularly those of color, those of rural and conservative communities, those who are queer-identified, those with varying abilities and citizenship statuses, and those who needed support when navigating barriers to accessing abortion care. Um, I just want to shout out Laji. Laji Duaz, one of our We Testify storytellers, local here in the Bay Area. I have to tell you, it feels really refreshing to be back in the Bay Area where I found reproductive justice and found my home in abortion funds. Um, how many of you know about Access Women's Health Justice? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, and the folks that are from Access, they're here, right? Yes, yes you are. Um, I just want to thank you for your work. Um, so, so many years ago when I started sharing my abortion story, uh, the folks at Access taught me about reproductive justice. It's a framework not only looking at the right to an abortion, but ensuring that everyone has the rights and resources to decide if, when, and how to create and grow their families, and the ability to raise their families in safe communities free from state-sanctioned violence and harassment. Um, I don't know if, Gab if Gabby's here. Is Gabby from Access? She's on her way. So um, she, when she gets here, you guys have to give her a shout-out, because she did the first training where I became a practical support volunteer. And as a practical support volunteer, that meant that I opened my home to complete strangers, traveling from Fresno, um, Humboldt County, and all over the, all over the state uh, to San Francisco and Oakland for later abortions. I met up with abortion patients to give them gas money. I welcomed them into my home. I took them out to dinner. Uh, I drove them to their appointments. And it really changed my life. Through Access, I learned firsthand about the barriers that others were facing in a supposedly progressive area with supposedly a ton of access. It showed me that there's no such thing as a right without access. And even with few regulations and laws, 
access can be next to impossible. And that's actually why abortion funds exist. Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in 1973, but shortly thereafter, Henry Hyde, a conservative representative from Illinois, my home state, I'm really sorry, <laughs> my bad, um, he added an amendment to the annual budget which bars Medicaid recipients in particular from being able to use their insurance to cover abortions. His goal was specifically to bar people from using their insurance, but he could only impact poor families. So he did. But abortion funds stepped up to fill that gap where the government is refusing to care for its people. Abortion funds have always been working to support folks as they navigate financial and logistical restrictions to abortion. Abortion funds are local organizations that help people with getting everything from their door to the clinic and back home again. Abortion funds help pay for abortions for those who can't use their insurance. There are helplines that folks can call in their local cities and states and say, hey, I need help. But unfortunately, there's a huge gap between how many people call and how many people abortion funds are able to support. Just to give you some numbers, in 2017, there were over 150,000 calls to abortion funds, but abortion funds were only able to help 29,000. It's a huge gap. But with that support, uh, you know, they're like the little engine that could, and they do everything from they fund abortions, they coordinate rides and flights to clinics, they act as translators, they help people find childcare, book hotels, open their homes, and serve as doulas, holding hands, so that abortion fund callers know that they're not alone and they're loved. Abortion funds are there when everything feels scary, and callers feel like they have no one else to turn to. It's a network of additional support when it feels like the world is against you. As many of you know, this moment we're faced with, where Roe is hanging on by a thread, I guess, if even that, it didn't come by accident. It's been part of a sustained dismantling of access for decades. It's been a racist, classist, and targeted attack against communities of color, queer and trans people, immigrants, disabled people, and young people. And it was designed this way. And honestly, it's nothing new. And while I know many of us feel really nervous during this moment, I know I do, the thing is, is that abortion funds are ready. We were built for this moment. And that doesn't mean that we aren't scared shitless. Um, we are definitely losing sleep. I know I am. But it means that we are doubling down on our values and what we've been doing for decades in preparation for this moment. Last week was the 10th anniversary of Dr. Tiller's assassination, and we hold his memory alive with his mantra of trust women. And through this moment, we're holding our values close and trusting each other. I know a lot of people say, well, if Roe falls, wealthy people will always be able to pay for their abortions and people with lower incomes won't have true access. And that's true. But I actually think that we need to have a more nuanced conversation than that. The reality is most Americans don't have $1,000 saved and an even bigger percentage don't even have $100 saved. So this leaves many people without the support they deserve. It leaves people without the ability to get the care that they need. And as our executive director, Yamani Hernandez, says, paying for people's abortions is a revolutionary act. It's re the redistribution of wealth. And it's making a legal right actually possible. 
But the reality is that even with fully funded abortions and no restrictions, the work of abortion funds will continue. People will always need a ride to the clinic. They will always need a loving hand to hold. And abortion funds, we will always be there. What we really need is for more people to join us in this radical resistance. We don't have to make this a fight. We can change the conversation about abortion by centering people who have and need abortions and showing up with love. We can change the conversation by talking about our values and what it means to not only support abortion access, but to show up for a complete stranger in a time of need and be that source of unconditional support. So what I'm asking of you at this challenging moment and in the future is for you to join us. As we say at the National Network of Abortion Funds, everyone loves someone who's had an abortion. And we're asking you to take that radical leap and show up for abortion access and for those that you love. So tonight, I hope that you'll join us in creating this future. And no matter what happens to Roe, abortion funds will be there. Thank you. So Aaron, um, yeah. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit from the provider perspective and tell us a little bit what is the Abortion Care Network and, and how do you all do your work? Okay, hi everyone. Um, my name is Erin Grant and I use they and them pronouns and I'm the Deputy Director of the Abortion Care Network. And whenever I'm asked um, to speak and someone will ask me like, what does Abortion Care Network mean and what do they do? I actually just give that right back to you. So I have a feeling that everyone in this room knows what abortion is, but can somebody define care for me? I'm gonna wait. With a room full of providers and people that want to be involved in this movement, I really believe that you can define, one person can just shout out a definition of care. Emotional support. Okay, emotional support. And can somebody else define a network? Sure. So we're abortion emotional support group. <laughs> Um, in some ways, resourcing out of a crowd what, what you consider us to be is really important. We are some of that. We're an emotional support group for providers and for the providers that actually hold on to the majority of care in this country um, and for providers that are providing the majority of second trimester care. So I want to really piggyback off of what Renee is talking about because I think that our organizations are in direct alignment because we have a, a situation, right? We have a situation where we're moving human beings around and then we're putting them on someone's doorstep. And that doorstep most likely is a clinic that I represent. Um, so it's important to talk about who we, who we are and who we're not. We are not um, federal health centers. We are not federated together. These are individual um, clinics, or they're clinics that have a single owner that have multiple sites. So there's, there's a lot of nuance in that, and I want to just open that up because I think that um, reproductive justice does push us to have a, a nuanced conversation about birthing, abortion, adoption, foster care, and, and uh, carceral punishment. So if we're able to just like hold that for a moment, I'm gonna go back to who ACN is. So I have the pleasure of um, being a voice, a voice of many of the people that actually are responsible for providing this care, and that say that they want to do it, um, connected to each other, and do it well. 
And that doesn't mean that we all do the same thing. But we do things, a couple of things that make us very unique. Majority of our clinics are not medication only. We only have about five of those in our network. So if you land at one of our clinics, we're gonna be able to help you in a way that is um, tried and true, and regardless of um, maybe what you thought you were gonna get that day. So if you find out information like you're above 10 weeks, you're not gonna leave. We're gonna see you. Um, another piece that is really, really important about um, ACN is that there is a standard around um, understanding and being willing to be moved in this political moment to a higher calling of values. And we just started this. And as a part of clinics, that's really important. Um, that's where we get to closer alignment, right? Um, so. Uh, UCSF, or Women's Options, is located here in San Francisco, and that is one member. There's so many clinics in California. But something that touches my heart is when I think of, um, we have a clinic in Chico. And during the fires, um, that site was offering abortion care, but they were also one of the sites for water distribution, for burn relief, for housing, right? So we have these clinics that are saying, we want to do abortion, we want to care, and we want to be a group. Okay, so that's a really easy way to talk about us. Um, the next thing that I think that is just super important to say again is that these are individual businesses, and the majority of them are for-profit. Um, and that's something I'm really proud of. I came from for-profit work, um, and I, it's not anything about nonprofit work, but it is about the structure. There's an institutionalization of being for-profit that, that leverages differently. So a majority of our clinics are not Title X clinics. The majority of our clinics are not 340B clinics. When you're talking about um, who is going to be harmed by these things, we might never actually be touched by some of those areas. But do you know what really is going to derail us? 1557, right? When you start to tamper with transgender care. Because we're also offering that as well. When you have sites that are holding on to so much care, that means that we might be the single site of reproductive health within your community. Um, and so when we're looking at something that I don't feel great about being here today, when we look at the state of Alabama, um, we see how being nonprofit meant that there was a lot of dollars raised. But um, Yashika Robinson, who is a black OBGYN who is providing abortion and catching babies, received none of that. Okay? So when we're talking about who is the most marginalized, who's the most affected, when we talk about um, rooting ourselves in uh, values, we also have to recognize where our clinics come from, who our clinics serve, and the historical um, disparity between black-owned, indigenous-owned, trans or queer-run healthcare facilities. Who is actually delivering that care and who is trusted to deliver that care to their communities consistently? We are abortion first. Um, we are not 2% of our business. We are abortion first. Um, Another thing that I want to say um, is that in these moments, in this political moment, um, it's very easy to latch on to a large threat row. Um, I'm very proud of our members because we did just have um, a meeting where we could source some information from them, and um, Roe was never going to protect them, and Roe was never the issue. 
And if you ask any provider, they will be very honest with you. Roe is not the key. The key is um, the distrust and the mistrust of bodily autonomy. And so for us, what we know is that when we look at the fiscal, the business side, that the, str- the strangling of clinics, uh, the closures, the 50 closures of clinics, happened over a course of, you can correct me, Renee, but I think it's now we're at 453, 453 bills that have been introduced in the last five years. So it's great for us that you want to show up in this moment, but we really needed you five years ago when we were being taken advantage of, when hundreds of thousands of dollars, quarter of a million dollars every year was being shelled out to bureaucracy. That's broken in our country. That's not unique to healthcare. Um, we want to be honest that we, we want to stay. We want to provide excellent care. The question is whether um, you will be honest with your family about wanting us to be here too. Um, we, are, we are dependent on people who have abortions to tell their own stories because we have our own story to tell as well. We have stories of medical assistants that are racially harassed. We have stories of patients that are in their third trimester that have been to seven states. We have stories of um, physicians that have two practices across the street from each other that say, see the same person and have to create individual MRNs to be able to separate them out because of the type of care that they're receiving, but not because of them. And then the last thing, because Dan, I think you're going to move me forward, is um, the strategies. Um, I don't want to derail anyone, um, but the strategies that we are using currently is to make sure that you're aware of us and to be included in the conversation. We have a large entity um, that we work closely with, a few of them, and they've been very honest with you, the public. They only do 2% of this care. And I want to challenge you to be critical thinkers and ask where that other 98 is coming from. Thank you so much. So, Stephanie, in five minutes, can you give us a whole overview of the legal landscape we're facing here? Sure, no problem. Um, can, can folks hear me? Okay, great. So... I'm going to shift gears and talk a little bit about the courts, and the courts aren't nearly as inspiring as the clinics or the abortion funds, but they are an important piece of the puzzle. So, so here's, here's an overview. I suspect that many people in this room are deeply concerned about the changes in the judicial landscape that have emboldened states across the country to enact these draconian bans on abortion. Will these bans be upheld? Will the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade, which has guaranteed the right to safe and legal abortion for nearly 50 years? As we consider these questions, the history of the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence serves as a useful guidepost, and I'd like to briefly recall that history and then take stock of where we are now. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe in 1973, its abortion jurisprudence has hardly been a steady march forward. All along, it's been more like two steps forward and one step back. Roe recognized for the first time that the Constitution guarantees every woman, and by implication, every pregnant person, 
the fundamental right to end an unwanted pregnancy. This was clearly a major advancement in the law. But just seven years later, in a case called Harris v. McRae, the court held that the government could prohibit public insurance policies like Medicaid from covering abortion. That was a case upholding the Hyde Amendment that Renee talked about. And in doing so, the court excluded low-income women from Roe's promise of equality and self-determination. Over the next decade, the Supreme Court struck down a number of restrictive abortion laws. But the court's membership became steadily more conservative during that time, as Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush filled five vacancies on the court during their collective 12 years in office. Several of their appointees expressed skepticism about the validity of Roe, and following the appointment of Clarence Thomas in 1991, it was widely believed that the Supreme Court was poised to overturn Roe entirely. The next abortion case to reach the court was Planned Parenthood versus Casey out of Pennsylvania in 1992. Much to everyone's surprise, the Supreme Court did not overturn Roe then. To the contrary, a majority of the court reaffirmed its central tenet that the Constitution protects the right to end an unwanted pregnancy as a fundamental right. But the court relaxed the standard by which abortion laws are judged, giving states and the federal government more leeway to enact restrictions. The court's abortion jurisprudence reached a low point in Gonzalez v. Carhartt, a 2007 case that upheld a federal ban on a method of second trimester abortion. Giving weight to unfounded claims that women who regret their abortions, that, given unfounded claims that women often regret their abortions and suffer psychological harm as a result, the court held that Congress was justified in banning the procedure despite evidence that it lowered the risk of complications for some patients. Gonzalez was undoubtedly a step backward and the decision emboldened hostile states to enact increasingly onerous restrictions, which have proliferated. Roughly a decade later, the court's zigzagging abortion jurisprudence took yet another turn. In Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, the Supreme Court struck down a pair of Texas laws that had threatened to shutter abortion clinics all across the state. In the process, the court held that a law is unconstitutional if it imposes burdens on abortion access that are not justified by proportional medical benefits. The court further held that the burdens and benefits of an abortion law must be established by credible evidence, not speculation or junk science. Holman's Health was a major advancement in the court's abortion jurisprudence, and it promised to put an end to the dizzying array of medically unnecessary requirements for obtaining abortion care that have spread throughout many parts of the country. But that was before Donald Trump was elected president and promised to pack the Supreme Court with anti-abortion justices. He's now had the opportunity to appoint two justices to the court, and many people once again believe that a majority of the court is poised to overturn Roe. Whether that prediction will prove more accurate today than in 1991 is really anybody's guess. The court's current term, which will be over in a few weeks, hasn't featured any major abortion cases. The court could hear an abortion case next term, which begins in October 2019 and ends in June 2020. If that happens, a decision would most likely come in late spring or early summer of 2020. 
I think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe just months before the next presidential election, but I wouldn't rule it out completely. A more likely scenario, in my opinion, is that the court follows the example set in Casey, reaffirming the central holding of Roe, but further diluting its practical protections. In some ways, that kind of decision would be more harmful than a decision overturning Roe outright because it would enable states to further diminish abortion access without triggering a big public backlash. Such diminished access would have a disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable communities in our society, and that's where we need to keep our attention and resources focused. Thank you. Um, so we're going to spend a few minutes, I'm going to ask a few questions, but if you all have questions, building on what um, sort of the depressing scenario that we just heard, um, if we get to a point where abortion is no longer available in some states, patients will need help traveling to other states where they can get the care that they need. So what sort of logistic support will be needed for patients? Um, what will be the role of clinics um, in those uh, states where they can't actually offer abortion care? Can they still play a role doing pre- or post-abortion care? And then also, what are some of the potential legal obstacles to this model of cross-state abortion provision? Um, I feel like I, sh I can go first. So the first thing I would say is, if I know we just logged into something, but I would, I would definitely um, encourage everyone to learn where their closest abortion clinic is. I think um, that's so easy. Um, but a lot of people, actually, if your friend was to call you right now, you would not be able to find it. Um, and so I can tell you that you can text 202, I'm going to say this very slow, 202-883-4620. You can text hello, and it will point you to the closest ACN member clinic. It will send you to the National Network of Abortion Funds for funding, and it will also link you to Planned Parenthood and to NAF to find clinics that are even closer. So again, we're trying to take some guesswork out of here. What we don't want, what I know our clinics don't want, is for you to invent something to address this issue. We've been working on it for 10 years at ACN, the funds have been working on it for 40, and I don't even know the legal <laughs> side. Um, so that would be the first thing. The second thing is that a lot of our clinics right now that are on border states are working to hit the maximum gestation. So in Pennsylvania, we're pushing our clinics to hit the maximum gestation um, because a lot of people are paying attention to Alabama. This started in Ohio. This was workshopped in Ohio and Iowa first. And so we're forgetting about the Midwest. We're forgetting about those states. So that's a lot of what we're doing right now, is just trying to make sure that people actually know where they can go to receive the care that they need. Yeah, I think, um, like I said, abortion funds, I mean, we're not new to this, we're true to this. We've been doing this for a long time. Um, honestly, this is how I got my start, doing practical support. Um, I was saying, Gabby, I know you just got here, but what I was saying is that you had trained me uh, in abortion funds or, uh, and doing practical support, and I think that, honestly, that is the most radical thing that you can do at this moment is open up your home, open up your car to someone who needs to travel for an abortion. Um, I literally last week had someone who's had a third trimester procedure, and 
I was taking her to the clinic and there's just such beautiful intimacy that happens when you're taking someone who's often traveling alone and has to sit in a hotel and doesn't really have anyone to talk to. And, you know, I took her out to dinner and we just talked about what was happening right now. We shared our abortion stories. Just that, that radical piece of just getting, being there for someone, um, it's just so beautiful. And I think that it's a great way that we can actually combat the larger conversation that, of the rhetoric around abortion that is just so disgusting and so vile that we can show someone humanity. Um, so I really, there's a lot of networks out there, a lot of abortion funds out there that you can get involved with and really make an abortion a reality for someone right now. So I would hope that you all do that. And I think um, we're going to see that we're gonna need more people who are donating to help folks fly across the country to get abortions, drive to other states um, and need homestays. So it's really up to all of us. And just because you live in California, I lived here too, I thought there wasn't a need. There is a need. There's always a need. And so we can all get involved and we can all do our part. And there may be even more of a need, right? There's more yes. patients to travel here. Stephanie. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in terms of folks having to travel across state lines to access abortion care, there's no legal barrier to an adult pregnant person going to another state. The Constitution protects the right to interstate travel. Um, but for now, right, for now, right. Um, it's also protected by the Commerce Clause, and that's one that the, the Supreme Court cares a little more about, maybe. Um, but there are potentially obstacles to young people traveling across state lines to access abortion care, particularly if they don't have the support of their parents. Um, so I think that's a population that we need to be, you know, really concerned about what's going to happen to their access. Also, there could potentially be implications for medication abortion, which typically involves a two-medication regimen where the first medication is taken immediately, but the second medication is taken 24 to 48 hours later. Um, it's not clear that a pregnant person will be able to travel back to their home state with that second medication and take it there if the state law bans abortion. So it may be that more folks are needing to, to have overnight travel to remain in the state where they access the medications in order to complete the procedure lawfully. I think that's also something we need to, to be aware of and, and to prepare for in, in terms of distributing our resources. Oh, I, I just realized something. I'm in California. Sorry, I got here at 2 a.m. Uh, Y'all have to pay attention as what people are saying about your state. You have to pay attention to Catholic mergers. I know that that's a controversial thing for me to say <laughs> on this stage, um, but mm -hmm. I want to really, I want to say that just one more time, that if you're in your EDs, in your emergency departments, if you're having struggles around miscarriage management, that is a, just a tick away from where we are going to be. So I just, I forgot to say that. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about self-managed abortion, so meaning um, people using things on their own to end an unwanted pregnancy. We certainly anticipate that self-managed abortion will become more common as folks face more barriers accessing clinic-based care. Um, but I wanted to know if you have thoughts about how will we ensure that people have 
uh, accurate information about regimens and how to, how to do things on their own and how to get access to medications. I'm curious if you have thoughts about what role clinics might play um, in providing the care around um, a self-managed abortion. Um, and then, of course, there are also legal risks that both patients and providers may face. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I want to say that I actually trust anyone um, to make any decision with their own body. Um, and I know many of our providers operate from that values-based place. Um, as a part of an institution, it depends on how the institution crumbles. That will, that will get us all free. Um, and then we can kind of build back together. But as long as um, I'm a part of ACN and representing institutional care, the, the places that we're starting to have conversations is whether our sites will be able to maintain uh, uh, ultrasound and radiological and laboratory uh, practice um, if abortion is banned in their state so that we can help with mis what we would diagnose as miscarriage management or pregnancy loss and support. Um, right now, that's not within a lot of care um, in states that have really tight, like I said, bureaucratic hold on abortion, you're not necessarily allowed to do miscarriage management or diagnose through ultrasound um, in my home state of Pennsylvania. So a lot of uh, what we're ramping up for is um, to support uh, ourselves as we encourage risk. Um, we want to acknowledge, I think, as providers that uh, we're willing to take the risks that our patients are. Um, but we also have licenses and buildings that um, historically, if an abortion clinic closes, um, it does not reopen. So our strategy has to be to be able to merge with funds, provide them with brick and mortar places as well. So I think we're looking at several approaches to keep the facilities um, because I do believe that we will win. We will win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, abortion funds are ready. Uh, we have on the National Network of Abortion Funds website how to end a pregnancy safely using pills. Um, and we support people choosing to end a pregnancy in whatever way is best for them. Um, we know that there are folks who use teas, who use herbs. Um, I work with some storytellers who have ended their pregnancies both successfully and unsuccessfully um, with herbs and teas. Um, it is a reality. I think I get frustrated because people talk about self-managed abortion as this pre-row thing that we can't go back to. No, it's happening now. And it also, just because something is illegal does not make it unsafe. Illegality is just an idea, right? Marijuana, hi. Illegal, well, not here, but other, <laughs> everywhere else, illegal, but it's, it's safe, right? So we know that a lot of the methods for self-managing an abortion, they may be illegal, but they are safe. Um, but what's on us is to make sure that folks have access to the safe methods for what they need, right? Um, and also making sure that folks have legal protection because we know that folks who have been self-managing their abortions or suspected of self-managing their abortions are being criminalized, particularly mm -hmm. um, communities of color um, so we want to make sure that abortion funds are at the front line giving the information to folks who might be self-managing their abortions so that they know where the risk is. It's not necessarily in safety right now. It is in legality. It is the legal risks. And I, I encourage you all, there's a lot of folks who are kind of talking about, we, we won't go back. Women are going to die. 
Yes, okay, that messaging is very, you know, dramatic. But the reality is that's not necessarily what's going to happen. We know that um, it's actually the criminalization piece. So we need to really talk about the intersection of our criminal justice system or injustice system um, and healthcare and communities of color. That is the conversation that we need to have and making sure that folks are able to get the care they need as safely and legally as possible. Yeah. Absolutely. Criminalization is a huge risk of self-managed care, both for uh, the pregnant people themselves who are, um, who, who are having an abortion, but also for the folks who might help them in that process, who the law might consider co-conspirators or aiders and abettors. Um, I think access to information is also a, a really critical piece to this, because as Renee said, there are safer ways to self-induce an abortion today and safe ways to self-induce an abortion using the medications that um, a clinician would use or a healthcare provider would use. There are lots of, of studies that demonstrate that, that folks can use these medications on their own safely provided they have the right information about how to do so and they have access to legitimate medications and not black market substitutes or, or other things. And so there are, I think it's important that um, for the legal community to try to delineate the boundaries between what healthcare providers and what supporters mm -hmm. can do within the bounds of the law, even in, even in a state where there's an abortion ban, and what is outside the bounds of the law. So healthcare providers can certainly provide pre-abortion care to a patient including gestational dating, including providing accurate information about what medications will induce an abortion safely, how to use them, what to expect afterwards. And healthcare providers can provide post-abortion care and treat any patient who might be experiencing a complication or who just might not know if what they're experiencing is normal or is, is a complication. Healthcare providers can do that without any risk. The risk comes from encouraging someone or um, providing material assistance in having the abortion, in sourcing the medications, in possibly bringing the medications across state lines. Um, and I think, you know, that's where I think we need to focus our legal advocacy to try to eliminate those criminal barriers and to encourage prosecutors not to use their resources, not to use their discretion to go after folks who are, are seeking to exercise their, their basic rights to control their bodies and, and to take charge of their care. Thanks. Should we open it to a question? Sure. Uh, I, we have one that, or actually I have two that are pretty similar, so I'm just going to ask them both together. Um, amid legal panic, uh, there's been a lot of fundraising that's been rooted towards Planned Parenthood. Um, how can we better channel uh, those energies um, and funds to indies and abortion funds? Sub-question, local fund or uh, national network? I mean, I work at the National Network of Abortion Funds, but give to your local fund. Yeah, I would say that um, abortion providers, independent abortion providers, specifically ACM members, we are, like I said, you know, it's funny for me to be on a panel at the same time as Renee. 
Most of, the, most of the time I don't feel like we both need to do it at the same time. Um, but I will say that um, we are in deep communication with the funds that surround our clinics. Those, those are relationships that were bef predated us all wanting to jump on to figure this problem out together. Those relationships have to do with the fact that um, we have very low turnaway in this, um, in this current climate because of the funds. Um, so we're, we're already in that discussion. And yes, I don't, I don't think that um, national to local, for me as somebody who represents the clinics, um, is necessarily important. From us, I want to say, um, if you really want to give to a clinic that's a for-profit clinic, be radical, get to the root of the issue, and redistribute your wealth. We, we can accept your money, you just don't get a tax break for it. Um, we have PayPal's. It's not like we're like, if you cut us a check, nobody's gonna turn it away. But I also don't want to continue the nonprofit um, industrial complex idea that by giving money to healthcare, that you're, you're a part of a stopgap. We're gonna spend it immediately. We're gonna buy more supplies. We're gonna fix parts of our building. But that's not, in healthcare, money does not um, work that way. The, the end is never ending, right? The need is never ending. So um, if you want to give to a, a clinic, uh, let me know. I will, <laughs> I, I will hand deliver that, that million dollars. Um, choices, <laughs> needs a birthing center, you know, we've got, we've got stuff to build. Um, we're not downtrodden about continuing care. One quick thing I'll add is that um, I think there's always this kind of this tension of, of national versus local, and we actually need support at both, right? Because so at the National Network of Abortion Funds, what we do is uh, make sure that abortion funds have the support so that they can actually grow. Um, most of the abortion funds don't have staff. Um, they're volunteer run, and so we want to help them build the infrastructure so that they can have staff because we actually have data that if an abortion fund has staff, they're actually able to help twice as many uh, abortion fund callers. Um, but I also think that it's really important that you give to your local community, get involved with your local abortion fund. I just told you, the folks from Access are here. Uh, talk to them, figure out how to get involved. Um, because I think, I, I don't know, I just think that you're working with your local abortion fund is a way to just find community um, and to make sure that you buy local abortions. So we just have a couple minutes left, and I want to just ask you, we've been hearing a lot about kind of depressing threats, and I want to hear, what are you most excited about um, related to abortion access or care? <laughs> yeah, I think Stephanie should go for it. Sure. Um, there have actually been a lot of really exciting developments at the state level where some states have stepped forward to say, we want to protect abortion access and we want to make sure that no matter what the courts might do, people will continue to have access to safe abortion care in this state. So Nevada recently passed a law decriminalizing abortion and removing some of the requirements that had previously existed in that state for biased counseling prior to obtaining an abortion. Um, Illinois is just about to pass a similar law that codifies the right to abortion and eliminates many of the restrictions in that state. Um, Maine has, yep. um, Maine has um, uh, two laws expanding access, 
one um, mandating coverage, health insurance, public health insurance coverage for abortion care, and one eliminating restrictions that have previously prevented qualified advanced practice clinicians, like nurse practitioners and nurse midwives and physician assistants from providing care. Um, Vermont is moving forward with a bill to codify a right to abortion access in that state. And hopefully these states will serve as models for others to expand access and to codify the right to abortion in, in their state constitutions or in state law. And there's also some proactive litigation going, around, uh, going on around the country, including in state courts, which aren't bound by the rulings of the U.S. Supreme Court and which can give voice and effect to their state's own constitutions. My organization just filed a lawsuit in Minnesota mm -hmm. seeking to expand access. Yep. There are other lawsuits going on around the country. I think all of that is a positive development. Um, I'm just going to say what excites me every single day is the number of people who've had abortions who are speaking up and saying that they had an abortion. Um, shout out to every single one of you who is sharing your story and changing the conversation. Um, I am proud to work with 45 abortion storytellers through We Testify, including trans and queer storytellers who have been like speaking out, changing the game in the last couple of weeks. Um, I sat with a young 18-year-old HK who testified before Congress about being a teen mom and needing an abortion. Um, just the fact that folks are unafraid and are being counted, um, it just, Laji just, Laji talks openly about being undocumented and getting um, a deportation order and needing an abortion and the complication that that is and that our nation does not provide for people to be able to parent if they want to that our nation's laws around immigration and who gets to parent are disgusting. And I think that, you know, you just, you and all the We Testify storytellers just make me so proud every single day. And I am just so thankful to work alongside you and everyone else who shares their abortion story and is counted. Great, I only have one minute. Um, I started to tear up, so I needed to take a deep breath. Um, I have to say that what gives me hope and what gives me light is to really see uh, providers starting to understand racial and gender inequity. Um, in my lifetime, if I can get anything to happen within the abortion rights movement is for us to grapple with white supremacy um, within this practice and also the historical aspect of uh, domination um, and violence that has happened to communities, um, brown and black communities and indigenous communities. So for me, seeing, um, seeing uh, people actually, instead of providers specifically, instead of being pulled in 8,000 directions by the political landscape and actually buckling down and having conversations within their staff and within their patient population about 
reproductive coercion and thinking that abortion clinics may be a part of a reproductive justice mod, like I'm getting freaked out right now, but <laughs> thinking that abortion clinics could be a place that reproductive justice as a clinical practice could start watching clinics flip into um, hands that have never provided that care. Giving Kwajalein Jackson a clinic was a goal of mine. Seeing Yashika Robinson, seeing black folks own clinics in the South is a goal of mine. Thinking about Laji running a clinic is a goal of mine um, because those intersections matter and we're separating everything out and we're not winning for the most marginalized. So as a queer person, for me to think that I would actually encounter a provider that would give me the option to have a family, right? To not discount my ability to raise a family. Um, and if I can do that for somebody 20 years down the line, then I will be, I will be so set. Thank you. Well, join me in thanking this incredible panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.